0: Don't tell anyone I'm free. Don't tell anyone I'm free.
1: Hello and welcome to BSD Talk number 165. It's Thursday, November 20, 2008. The following interview was recorded on Sunday at MeetBSD in California. Now that I'm back from that conference, I just want to say that it was a wonderful event, and it was great to see so many familiar faces and also meet so many new people. And I can't wait to attend the next one. Anyway, here's the interview. So this is another recording from MeetBSD at Google in California, and I'm here with uh, one of the conference goers, and why don't I just have you introduce yourself
0: and let us know why you're here and what you're up to? All right, my name is Julian Ellisher. You can probably tell from the, uh, from the accent that I'm originally from Australia. Um, now, here in uh, San Francisco Bay Area for 17 years, so I'm a bit mixed up as to where I belong. Um, I'm uh, one of the FreeBSD longtime developers, and some people have said to accuse me of being a core team member. i not a core team member, I'm just someone who's just always been there. Out of the furniture. Um, I started in uh, BSD on 1990. Um, I came to the States to work for a company called TRW, and they were doing the section I was working on, We were doing bank back end processing systems uh, with image processing and large uh, server farms, all of which were running BSD 4.3 on uh, VME based 68030 systems and uh my first job that I got job that I got within the within 2 days of arriving was to redo some network drivers and uh, disk drivers to support hand basically data handoff which is where the the packet comes in from uh, from the networks and is put onto the disk uh directly through DMA through a, a piece of memory somewhere in the middle but that the computer never actually looks at the data and so from that point that pretty much set my the tone for my uh my expertise in BSD from then on. It's always been sort of network stuff or the disk drivers or, or uh, something in between, you know, something, something that would be involved in moving data from A to B, though I guess that probably defines most of the system. I started, so I started off there and uh, we, went, we were on uh, BSD 4.3. That was the days when you had to have a System 5 licence uh, to be able to see the code. And uh, as part of that course, that uh, job I got offered, um, the ability to go to uh, a course on uh, BSD kernel internals run by Kurt McKusick at University of California. And uh, that was uh, convenient because our office was only two blocks away from University of California in Berkeley. And so I would go up there every once once or twice a week, I can't remember how many times it was, and... Do my course, and during one of those uh, lectures, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Demetrio, who was also doing the course, came down one day with a stack of s- uh, floppy disks. I remember they were three-inch floppy disks, and he came down with a stack of them about, I don't know, eight inches high, and said, "Guess what's just been released? They just re- someone's just released uh, BSD 4.3 for free on the internet, and downloaded onto you know, 37 floppies or whatever it was, and uh, you can download it onto your own system." Uh, until then, as I say, we'd been using System 5 license and we had uh, source licenses but required the licensing. So this was the first time that it became sort of free. And that that was a release of um, 386BSD, which was the precursor to NetBSD and FreeBSD and through them OpenBSD and DragonflyBSD. Um, and so that was how I got into the free stuff until then I'd been using, um, as I say, BSD 4.3. And also Mark... Uh, Mark was a was an operating system from Carnegie Mellon, um, and they had put all their effort into this concept of a microkernel, uh, but they didn't want to rewrite you know everything, file systems and network stacks and everything. So what they did is they took the core parts of the operating system that they were working on, and they grafted it into basically uh, BSD 4.3, and so we had been looking for a they had an x86 port of this, and we had been looking to. Downgrade our stuff from the uh, expensive VME based systems to make uh, Unix based workstations. And so we used Mark uh, with BSD 4.3. Uh, the funny thing about that was, of course, that we had been using BSD 4.3 for our base servers and so on. So now we were using basically the same code base um, for the workstations. And uh, that led to me learning very quickly about byte orders. Uh, the x eighty six was little and Indian and the sixty eight thirties were big indian and uh I've had a, a very quick and rude introduction as to as to where and when one needed net to host longs net to host shorts and so on through network stacks and why they were there until that moment i have been sort of ignoring them and uh and uh, that was so that was the beginning of uh, that uh, when I got the uh fl- set of floppy disks actually I never actually used the floppies but I I took one of my Mark workstations and I converted it across to 386BSD, and I was uh, very delighted to find, for example, that uh, the file system code was the same, so I didn't actually have to reformat the disk even. I just ran a different operating system on it and it read the same file, same file system. Um, And so after that, we had sort of a group of of developers um, who were maintaining uh, 386BSD, because uh, Bill Jollitz and Lynn Jollitz, who had uh, put it out, had a family crisis which sort of took them away from the picture. And uh, so we were maintaining and we used to maintain a... got a patch set, and we used to put out official patch sets. Uh, and they were basically... You would get the 386 BSD distribution, and then you would apply the patch set to it, and that would bring you up to date to whatever the latest uh, release of, of the 386 BSD with the bug fixes and so on in it. Then... We needed somewhere to go, and I ran uh, a server for all of these developers on the um, the TRW uh, financial systems external network, so available from the internet. And uh, you know, basically, anyone who wanted to do work would get a uh, could get an account on that machine, and uh, you know, work with the sources. Uh, We didn't know about source control to any great extent then. I think we just had. Uh, uh, a master tree. I can't remember actually maybe we had CVS no we didn't have CVS we just had the sources and you would take a copy of the sources and then you would work on them and you'd make diffs against the original tree and that would go into the patch set in 1993 I went home to Australia for various reasons for a year and during that time um, Jordan Hubbard and a couple of the other guys forked off um, FreeBSD uh, from that, they had a. It was basically a, a I'd say, a, an organisational argument with the Jolitces um, rather than a, a technical argument. Um, the NeBSD people had more of a technical argument, and they had sort of like forked off earlier. But they felt that the Jolitzers had were just not doing enough to help support the stuff, and they wanted to. They needed to have you know like a CVS tree and a better um, support structure, and, and they forked off freeBSD. Um, well, I think a lot of people hoped that that the Jollitsers would eventually come around and we would all be one happy family again. Um, and that, that didn't happen. Uh, I think Bill and Len, from memory, I, I, I kept in touch with them for a while afterwards. They had too much on their plates for, say with family things going on. I think Bill's dad died and Bill had to take over some of his work uh, and, and things like that. So they sort of dropped out of the picture and that left FreeBSD sort of a self-standing entity. Um, at that stage, well actually before it in the patch kit stage, um, I had been doing work for TRW, and this is sort of a recurring theme for me, um, that the work that I 'm doing for the companies that I 'm working for usually ends up impacting FreeBSD or vice versa. While we were running on mark, uh, we, I had needed to we I mean, had to have um, some SCSI access, and the Mark system had no SCSI system. So I ended up writing a SCSI system for that, and I believe that's... Well, then I ported that SCSI system from Mark into 386 BSD, and that was relatively easy because it was all BSD-based. A lot of common common code, and a lot of concepts were same. I think some little bits in the bottom changed, and that became the basis for the FreeBSD SCSI system, which later got rewritten by um, Justin Gibbs and so and et al. Uh, but the um, But I believe it's still in NetBSD. I must say I've I've lost track of it, but I think it's still the the SCSI system in NetBSD. And by that, OpenBSD as well. Uh, There are still some remnants. I think you'll still find a few files, the .h files and so on, from that SCSI system in the current FreeBSD uh, SCSI system. I think maybe my name's still on a few of them. And uh, what else did I... Oh, the boot blocks. The originally uh, 386BSD came out with... uh, a boot block on the floppy that knew how to access a floppy controller, literally by hardware. And that would toggle certain bits and do certain stuff. And the Mark people had worked out how to do it through the the BIOS. And so using the stuff that uh, the Mark people had worked out, I rejigged their boot blocks and produced a BIOS-based set of boot blocks, um, which gave you two uh, possibilities. Firstly, you could boot... On drives that were not specifically compatible, as long as the BIOS knew how to handle them. And 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 secondly, you could uh, you could you had the ability to actually put out a question like, which kernel do you want to boot on? Because until that moment, uh, the boot blocks that came with 386 uh, SD, you really didn't have any option. You you could you you booted and you booted whatever was on the system. And so it was a it was became a requirement to be able to boot off an alternate kernel. As soon as you're doing kernel development, you want to test a kernel. And you want the ability to boot off a different kernel so that if it doesn't work, um, you can still boot off your original kernel. So those are two things that I, that I was involved in very early in the, in the FreeBSD world. Um, and then I went through working to... did some more for, work for TRW again and then to Whistle Communications and uh, then to Vicor in Richmond and then to, now to Ironport, which is now Cisco. And each of those locations since then has been a sort of like a, a repeat on the first one. You know, Using BSD to get some problem solved. And 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 as a part of that, uh, the development we do on the BSD to solve that problem generally flows back to FreeBSD. Um, and I can get more to those later.
1: Yeah, and that, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you. Not only because of your, your history and, and your perspective on FreeBSD, but also I'm always looking for success stories for companies that have taken... FreeBSD or portions of FreeBSD, and and put them into a successful business.
0: Well, I mean, FreeBSD has paid my wages for the last um, what I guess fifteen years since This since the fifteenth anniversary of FreeBSD. So, so basically, I was in Australia at the time when they forked FreeBSD, but I um, but I, I was on board within a week or two. Um, basically, I think they had I, they were basically. Um, Still, still setting things up when I eventually did did get on, th- on board on there, um, I was sort of off off the net for a little while. But when I got back onto the net, I, it was very very early in the in the game, uh, matter of weeks, maybe a couple, maybe as much as two months. But uh, I can't think I was much more than that. I know I was still involved in the three eight six BSD stuff before that. So uh, it just a case of when I switched over, and I don't actually remember. Anything we did on the free Arttics BSD changes went into FreeBSD anyhow, so that, so it was pretty much the same thing. I worked for Whistle Communications from 1996 to 1999, and that's that was a success story with a with a sad ending. We produced a um, a small appliance which was basically the what we used to, we used to call it the IT department in a box and it was for the small companies imagines like a, a real estate agency or something who has maybe 15 or 20 employees and they want to have email and they want to have file sharing and a website and uh, and they have other services that need to be provided like DHCP and uh, um, you know time services and um, SMTP and pop mailboxes and so on and this was basically all configurable from a from a little web page configuration setup um, and you could uh, do all of those things and it was it was relatively successful. We got a lot of positive press and so on and I say successful because well we all did well out of it because IBM bought us and uh, and so those of us who had been in the company from from the beginning um, we didn't well some the guys who actually were the founding of three people they made millions and millions of dollars, so the rest of us didn 't make millions. Um, but we made enough money to to get us maybe out of that little first you know down payment for a house problem uh, something like that and so um, so that was successful uh, from that point of view it was not successful from the point of view of the IBM those big companies to change their mind and just shut the company down this was a very strange sort of decision to spend 120 million dollars on something and then and then turn it off but um, that's it. that's life. One learns not to take it personally. Uh, but we did do. You did get a lot of things out of that. Um, a lot of development went on in in there. And we, from that, we got. Let me see. We put the uh, soft updates code for uh, FreeBSD was ported by McCusick under a, a license from Whistle under a, a a grant or actual contract, I should say. Uh, we wrote uh, the divert sockets code, which we put in FreeBSD. We wrote the NetGraph subsystem, which is there's a lot of stuff about that already written and spoken, I'm sure. And there's, uh, what else did we do? We did um, the Apple Talk stack. Uh, we ported that in. Uh, and we did the um, uh, I've I've forgotten. It's one <laughs> of these so many years ago, but we were, we were, we were continually putting things into back into FreeBSD. Yeah,
1: I do hear a lot of people occasionally worry that the BSD license means that companies will take and not give back
0: and it's, it's nice to hear that, that that's not always the case well it makes, it makes sense for a company to give stuff back because then they don't maintain it and the stuff that, that they give back is, is kept current um, and a good example is the NetGraph code I mean we could have kept netgraph internal to ourselves but when we went to FreeBSD 4 and an SMP came into the picture things needed to be changed and when we went you know into FreeBSD 6 um, or FreeBSD 5 and 6 with uh, changes had to be made into netgraph and so on to go multiprocessor and and you know other people did that and also other modules get written people have in netgraph now there are, there are so many modules in netgraph that I have lost track I mean, there's when I put when I first committed, there were like you know, 12 modules or something, which was basically what we needed. I think there's like 50 or 60 modules now, uh, and and I certainly haven't written maybe I've written another one in one or two in that time, um, but you know, the, I certainly didn't write the other 40 of them. Um, and so, putting stuff out there leads to you saving money down the track, basically. Um, the same thing with. Um, and that's been a, that's been true for every company I've worked. with. there's always been someone that says, "Should we give this back?" And it's always been a very easy argument to make that, that this, this this technology is giving FreeBSD the capability of doing something, but our competitors already do this. They've written their own code to do this, uh, and if we and in fact if we put our stuff back and it gets accepted into FreeBSD, it makes life more difficult for them. <laughs> um, so so there's always been a. a a really good reason to put stuff back and to put it back in relatively quickly. Some people have taken the point of view or we will put it back in three years' time. The trouble is, you put it in three years' time, you may not get it back because someone else... You know, people tend to get the same itch at the same time. And and because you're solving a particular problem, that probably means one of your competitors is busy solving that problem uh, right now. And so if they get their stuff back and it becomes a standard... Um, then your stuff is out of date and, and, and you eventually are going to have to do something about that, particularly if it behaves differently from the standard. So there's a good argument, there's always a good argument to put things back in pretty quickly unless you happen to know that you have a competitor which is doing which is solve, trying to solve exactly the same problem that you are trying to solve and they haven't solved it. I mean, then you can make an argument, but even then, you know, in, in a year's time you're going to be able to put it back because then they're going to either have solved it or gone out of business. So... Um, so, so that's pretty, pretty simple. The, the company I worked for, let me see, the one I worked for after that was Vicor in um, in uh, Richmond in California, and they were doing back-end processing systems for banks, which takes me back in a circle to the original company, the TOW. That was a image processing system for banks. And in fact, it was basically all the same people. Um, the people from the first company had had all quit in disgust at TRW's mismanagement of that company and had uh, had gone, at least the way they viewed it, and had gone and started their own company. Um, well, no, they hadn't started their own company. Someone had started the company and they had all gone to it following a particular uh, person who was the lead engineer. And uh, and so they sort of got me in. So, come on, Julian, you can come and join us over here. We're having a great time over here. So, so I did that. And things that came out of that from FreeBSD were... Um, improvements to the usb system for example basically bug fixes and imp- improvements to the scheduler and and things that we just where where we were trying to get something done and freebsd just was like not quite making it and you'd go in there and knock the corners off it and, and figure out exactly how to make the square peg round and, and 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 those things always made it back you know patches bug fixes so on it's just not worth keeping those things to yourself
1: i imagine in the financial sector that there was a lot of competition and pressure from other large companies that were making their own proprietary Unix. How was it? You know, how how well did BSD compete against those versions of Unix?
0: Actually, the the well, if in the two cases it was very different, and in both cases the problem that the management had in those companies was the same. Um, in the first company, in, in the branch of TRW, they felt that they were not. They were they were despite the fact that they were the industry leader and they were, you know, had big contracts and 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 maintenance agreements in the future to bring them in definitely in hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever over the next five years or whatever. They felt that they wanted to you know there's always this this pressure from management to reduce costs, reduce costs, um, and and so they in the in the first company T R W they had this sudden urge that they needed to follow a Cots thing which is common off the shelf and so consequently we've got this edicts from management thou shalt go to windows nt and thou shalt use sun servers and so on and, and and it looked very good on paper you know we won't have you know we have at the present we've got you know like sort of like 100 engineers and we can cut that down to 50 engineers if we don't support our own operating system and we don't support this and we don't support that and and we can just get lower grade engineers. We don't have to get these top notch, you know, developers. We can get, you know, sysads to run Sun Gear. We don't need to have people who can change the kernel. And it's that's that's a, it's a very, very um, attractive argument from management. And it's also a completely uh, uh, specious argument because what it means is that is that you are using common off the shelf components, and therefore you have all the common off the shelf limitations that every other company has. And so consequently, the the TRW branch that I was talking about, um, uh, that that section very quickly dropped back into a position as a me-too vendor uh, because they really couldn't do anything that the other people couldn't do. uh, Or they couldn't do it. They could do only what the other people could do. They couldn't do anything that the others could not do. Yes, that's right. (laughs) My negative negatives right there. Um, So... um, they, they had they eventually had had a lot of problems with selling their gear because they really couldn 't do anything different whereas previously they, they could do things differently We were doing things I remember with, the, with we were doing at least two or three times the throughput of other systems and and because we were breaking the rules of what you would expect. Um, we were passing, I think, 15.5K packets across these Ethernet, um, and we had special device drivers and, and special hardware to decode. We were, de- we were pulling 15K packets off Ethernet, which we were using as a local bus, and putting them straight into memory buffers, which were offline memory buffers, which were feeding into disk drivers directly onto disk drives. So basically we had memory, uh, me- basically LAN-attached disks uh, with, uh, with no CPU intervention, other than as traffic cop, and so so we were doing you know things we we could saturate with one sixty eight thousand and thirty we could saturate six or seven Ethernet's completely, which in those days was it was unheard of. And then when we went to the Suns, then those those server boxes were costing, I think they cost us like fifteen thousand dollars to make them, and we were selling them for seventy thousand dollars, and or something like that, and and the uh, and the customers were happy because they were getting performance that they could really see. And and when we got the Suns, the Suns service to replace them, they had to have three times as much hardware because we had been three times as efficient before. The Suns servers, I remember, were like $240,000, of which we had to sell them for like $180,000 to make the bid competitive. So we had to basically eat, the, eat all of the costs, all of our profits and, and some others, um, and so we ended up selling a couple of these systems at losses, I think, from memory, um, because they really, you know, they, if you know, if you're going to give Sun all the money, where are you going to get it from? You know, it's just a, you know, very attractive to the to the management. They're going to save money on all these engineers, but they didn't. <laughs> they make up. They make up for the losses though by selling more or Right. They <laughs> get up in volume, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. So.
1: Now, at this point, you had always been, I assume, sort of working in systems where it was sort of the entire free free BSD system or, you know, at the operating system level. Yeah. In your move to Ironport, is that also working on systems that are running the full Uh, BSD stack?
0: Ironport, well, you remember the first company I worked for at BSD, all the people went to the third company Mm -hmm. and then I joined Mm -hmm. them there. What happened is that the second company, after IBM shut it down, some of the people there went to Ironport. And so... It's been like a leapfrogging thing. Now I'm working with the same people that I worked with in the second company mm-hmm. uh, with the appliance. And, and, and you can see that in the appliance that Ironport makes, or Cisco now. Uh, it has very much the same uh, multi-boot functionality, by which I mean you have two root partitions and you can upgrade the system by taking a download which load onto the alternate boot and then you boot onto the second boot and it's second root partition. And if it doesn't work, it falls back to the first one again, and that sort of stuff. In fact, we are using the same boot blocks that we had at Whistle. Um, even though FreeBSD has moved on to different boot blocks, we're actually using the old Whistle boot blocks because they, they do that functionality actually better than the, the current FreeBSD ones. And one of these days I'm going to fix that. So the, the, the IronPort appliances are pretty generic Dell server hardware running what they, what IronPort calls Async OS. And Async OS is a FreeBSD base and a layer above it of an asynchronously threaded Python based based system and um, so it's asynchronous uh, event driven cooperatively threaded, that's the, the full thing so that's the cost the, 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 the FreeBSD underneath VSD underneath it is pretty much standard FreeBSD with a few patches here and there to give slightly different perf- different performance characteristics in some spots and slightly different uh, slightly different behaviour in some in some little spots. Um, but basically, um, and the reason that we're able to use standard FreeBSD is pretty much because all of the changes go back to FreeBSD. So if we need some particular bit of bit of functionality. Uh, and it's not incompatible with what other people want, uh, since there are three committers at Ironport. Uh, we, you know, if, if it looks like it's something other people would like to have, we have no problem putting it back. I mean, our our competitors, as uh, Ironport uh, would have been uh, Bluecoat and so on, and they they aren't using FreeBSD anyhow, so um, so it doesn't really worry us. But it, it does make it possible for us to 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 not take full maintainership and it means it means that and that that feeds back to Ironport's advantage because Ironport when I joined in two thousand and five, uh, unfortunately a little too late for the good stock options, but yeah. Um they were using FreeBSD four point eight. And we've moved forward to FreeBSD six point one and then FreeBSD six point three and we're about to go to FreeBSD seven point one whenever it comes out. We're sort of like sitting waiting holding our breath. Uh and um we're able to do that because those functionalities that we need that we were not in 6.3, we added to 6.3. And then we went ahead and put it into current and then back into 7. So as we get to each branch, each new branch that we're going to go to, we find those things which are patches, our own private patches in 6.3, are already in 7.1 because we've already put them in. You know, it so said this is a functionality that, that is generally useful and it certainly helped us do our job. And so we put it into seven point one or into seven seven branch. So when we get there, we actually it becomes easier. some people, other companies who don't do this, they, they 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 like for example, Nokia was stuck on FreeBSD two point something for years. They've only recently got an it was a big effort for them to come up. And and the reason that the reason was, but they had modified the operating system so much that when they finally found they needed SMP, um, and they had to upgrade to FreeBSD six point something. It was a real big effort, whereas for us, because every time we make a change to the system, we push it back into FreeBSD, or we make we make it in a way in which it's sort of very independent if it's not pushed back. Um, it's very easy for us to go forward from each release to the next, and, and so we do it regularly. So we, as I say, 4.8 to 6.1 to 6.3, we're going to go to 7.1, and we don't see any particular problem with that.
1: And obviously it made you
0: competitive and successful enough to catch the eye of Cisco and <laughs> get bought by Cisco. Yeah. This <laughs> is, it's like a, 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 yet again. So uh, yes, yeah, so I mean if I got bought by IBM and then the company Vicor got bought by Medi- Medivante, um, uh, uh, there's a story behind that. I was going to a minute. Uh, not, not Medivante, but the, but the, the second company Vicor and now, uh, on, uh, i we've been bought by Cisco. Um, the the story behind uh, uh, ViCor is that I said the first company had this strange management idea that they had to go to common off-the-shelves components and thereby shot themselves in the foot. The second company, uh, Vi, or oh, the third company, ViCor, yeah, the third one, they had a management management decision that they were going to go with Linux. And uh, so far, they've utterly failed with that. Not because Linux doesn't do the job, but because their biggest customers are already running the BSD stuff and are happy with them and don't want to upgrade. <laughs> So um so there's so they're still uh doing that but it's, it's, I feel like going to them sometimes saying, That Linux move, how's that working out for you? Um uh, but it's not um it's it's uh, they're still doing BSD stuff there. Yeah, so with Cisco and Cisco is a is a, is a big Linux company, but uh When Ironport got uh, taken up into Cisco, um, it turned out that Ironport became a large part of a small part of Cisco called Securities Technology Business Unit, STBU. And uh, a lot of the other engineers who were there, who were Linux engineers, um, came rushing to the management and says, Oh my gosh, does this mean we're all going to have to switch to BSD? (laughs) And the answer to that one was that the management went went to told them and said no. In fact, the guys at uh, Ironport were all running around saying, gosh, does that mean we have to switch to Linux? And the answer is for both of those, is going to be no. Um, of course, I would like to switch them to BSD. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen somehow. But I guess if
1: at least you can operate under the umbrella of a benevolent company
0: leader yes. that lets you do your stuff. Yes, but, yes. Well, the STBU uh, guy, has, has he was uh, in... Um, well, was he was in the guy. The guy at STBU is it, the, well. The CEO of Ironport has became became the manager of, of STBU. Uh, so basically, it was like a palace coup. Um, mm-hmm. the Ironport took over over STBU, and his, his cronies all took over the bit. So STBU is now sort of like it looks a bit like Ironport plus um, plus. But uh, it's 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 working out well. We're getting you know stuff sort of moved between. Back and forth between them, and it's working well. And BSD is, is gaining um, some respect, uh, I think. People are looking at it as a real possibility in that area now, anyhow.
1: Do you think the, a switch to 7 would really help in that regard, just from a performance standpoint?
0: Uh, you know, I don't think performance is really a huge issue in these things. Once you get into large companies, you realize that very often the things that the, man, the technical people look at as being the things uh, of interest. Are not the things that management looks at as being interest. Management is interested in stability. They're interested in maintainability. Um, all these things which engineers find kind of boring sometimes. Um, and so, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say that a change to seven is going to make a huge difference. How about the licensing? Do you think that the managers look at that? <laughs> they should. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, um, this is this is rather funny. There was a. Um, there's there's one guy in 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 there in uh, Cisco who's a very big Linux uh, person and they had a big fight at one stage there was a, there was a project which was considering using BSD and there was a a huge fight from all the, the penguinistas uh, and they they actually managed to stop the project from using BSD on a in a political way which is sort of unfair but one of their arguments they used which was really funny was that since Juniper used BSD uh, they would be validating Juniper's choice of operating system. Hmm. <laughs> like, uh, that doesn't sound like a very, you know, very good reason to not use BSD for me. But it was—I thought it was funny at the time. They also—they also, they also say that maybe they could get into a kernel war with Juniper, and they would be some, uh, beholden to Juniper, you know, hoping to not ruin FreeBSD for them. Which is—it's—it's it's just uh, very specious and strange arguments. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope that that Cisco can let the two coexist and, and well, let
0: i 'm hoping so <laughs> yeah.
1: and also I think let each one demonstrate its merits and you know make decisions there and maybe one 's appropriate here another one's appropriate there yeah the the Cisco
0: internally have a uh, well, they have a a, a big uh, open source uh, overseeing project where you 're supposed to report anything that that you know if you use and they they have to verify that you know the license on it is okay and so on. And I think a lot of companies are, are are coming like that, are coming to coming to grips with open source software um, and starting to understand what the licenses mean. I'm still a little surprised at them going with Linux so much because of the, the the GPL issue, but they don't think it's a it's an issue they can they can they can live with it. They've got websites with stuff on it, and, and I think they feel that that you know covers them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyhow, any other? No, I think.
1: Uh, I mean, it's a fascinating conversation. I think we could, you know, keep going for a long time. But we do have to be mindful of, of when the next presentation is going to happen. I don't want to make you miss it. So. Yes, yeah, since I'm supposed to be
0: recording it. Yeah. So thanks again, you know, for sitting with It'd me. It's been a pleasure. All right, and uh, maybe yeah. we can. Speak well, thank again. you for your for your recordings. I, I'm I'm an avid listener. I I have uh, have it as a podcast on my iTunes. So whenever I'm, you know going somewhere and I'm bored and want something to listen to, I always go over and have a look and see whether there's anything new on BSD Talk. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. If you'd like to leave comments on
1: the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 165.